ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਫਤਿਹ ਸੋ ਲਾਸਟ ਨਾਈਟ ਵੀ ਪੁਟ ਅਪ ਅ ਆਰਟੀਕਲ ਔਨ ਦਾ ਬਲੌਗ ਵਿਚ ਡਿਸਕਸਡ ਸਿਕਿੰਡ ਅਡਲਟਰੀ ਐਂਡ ਦਾ ਰਿਸਪੌਂਸ ਵੈਰੀਡ ਫ੍ਰੋਮ ਐਕਸਟ੍ਰੀਮਲੀ ਪੋਜ਼ਿਟਿਵ ਟੂ ਡਾਊਨਰਾਈਟ ਪੇਜੋਰੇਟਿਵ and one of the responses we got was from someone who claims they're part of a Sikh sampradaya which does idolatry and just before we start their exact wording was that uh, you guys are a bunch of fudus for promoting all this and i would like to respond to them well thank you paji for telling us we are part of your family but where do we sign the disown papers <laughs> <laughs> So I mean <laughs> see if they had some guts they would have actually put this up as a comment and they would have actually done this publicly you know so even if they have a account under another presumed them, but right down to you know being down right offensive to us then we won't hold back as well you know because we all have human dignity and if you guys think that we are below animals for you know saying what we say for having our views then don't worry about it we will also treat you we will treat you differently we won't rip away your dignity but if you really think that we're going to stand there and allow you to call us for those well then yes we're just going to pretty much point it right back at where you got those values and virtues which make you a fudu from anyway and like they say it takes one to know one anyhow so what happened was that initially speaking there was no plan to actually you know do a episode on the same thing as you know what we wrote on the blog however in light of this statement we decided otherwise so now here's the thing we have we discussed in a previous episode how in the 20s the tat khalsa cleaned up the precincts of the darbar sahib and took the idols out from there yep and after that it sort of uh, galvanized mahatma gandhi there and then many others into action against the sikhs because up till that point they had been using quite a lot of elements to say sikhs were hindus and disparaging sikhi outright but when sikhs started fighting back for their own rights to defend their ethos their philosophy it didn't sit well with many and we can see a similar thing at play today if we're out there giving langar we are all good if we stand up for our kakars we are fanatics fundamentalists anarchists extremists pakis or whatever the hell they call us keeping that in mind we also need to remember something which is going to be quite offensive to many sentiments with what i'm about to say what we're about to discuss is that the sikhi of today if you look at how we understand the sikhi of today there is a fundamental a radical difference between the sikhi of today and the sikhi of yesteryear now the sikhi of the past was able to produce you know warriors and statesmen like you know baba banda singh bahadur mata sahib kaur you know nawab kapoor singh that sikhi was also able to finish us with guru gobind singh who was you know who lived as the template for guru nanak's khalsa how they understand understood sikhi would have been light years apart from the sikhi which you know we have been fed since the past 200 years agree with your statement right there 100% right. agree 100% now <clears throat> the thing is if we were to say even a little thing it suddenly becomes you're looking at it from a you know pre uh, post colonial perspective you're looking at it from an abrahamic perspective 
you're looking at it from a British perspective. The same people who say this to us are arguing that Sikhs used to do havan, Sikhs are dharmic, Sikhs believe in reincarnation, Sikhs believe in Vedas. And every June, now that June is coming up, they will be the first ones out there to take pakoras at the, you know, Uniso Pog and say that what happened to them was very, uh, and we will agree on this, what happened was extremely, uh, you can say, inimical, extremely, you know, I guess to put it simply, bad for the community. It was sanguinary for the community. It was a holocaust for the community. But at the same time, these guys will be turning around and saying Sikhs are a Vakri Qom. And then for the rest of the year, for the other 11 months, Sikhs are not a Vakri Qom. Call it the hypocrisy and you suddenly become a Calvinistic, uh, you know, someone with a Calvinistic perspective, Abrahamic perspective. At the end of the day, all this so-called academic intellectual debate, it's just hollow words being thrown around. Nothing is coming out of it. It isn't making anyone a seek. I agree with you. And you also have to identify that. Uh, I, I think uh, in some previous podcast, I think I have, I have asked you this question. What's the difference between insult and description? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. So, so here, they can also call you that you are doing a nindya. Yes. Of, of their so-called sampradha. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an important question. What's the difference between a description and an insult? See, this is where we come down to the fact how much of a free speech is a free speech if we can't criticize what we believe to be wrong. And if we criticize it, then we should be getting a reply trying to at least justify what we think is wrong. Or at the very least, they should be, you know, telling us that, you know, this is why you guys are wrong, rather than, you know, grabbing pitchforks and running straight for the, you know, internet to tell us we're fudus. <laughs> yeah, from his, uh, from that guy's perspective, he's describing us that we are fudus. Yep. Yeah, you, you you have to understand from his perspective, yeah? Yep, you need to understand from his perspective. And I wonder if there's any uh, any sort of a manuscript out there which justifies this language, you know, being used by them. If someone like us was to use that language, I mean, the fact we have said fudu now, imagine how many, you know, snippets they can just take out of this one thing and sort of uh, lambast us with it, crucify us with it. And then if it's one someone who's one of them, they just, you know, instantly hold their peace that, uh, you know, at the most, it's almost like you have an excuse ready for everybody. Well, they have an excuse ready for everything and every single incident. Amazing. I murdered somebody. Oh, sorry. Go to Amritsar and have, you know, Ishnan and Ramda Srovarnate Sabutre Papkamat. And, you know, these sort of things, when you're thinking about it, when they misinterpret Gurbani, and that's something we will be talking about today, is how they've misinterpreted Gurbani and also the verses of Pai Gurdas. Now, you would think that, you know, among them, there is no general agreement as to what is Amrit Bella. You know, one faction is saying that it's at 12 o'clock, another is saying it's at 3 o'clock, and another is saying it's 6 o'clock. And then they, you know, routinely say that you need to get to that point where you have enough powers to, you know, Super teleport yourself to the bar side, have Ashnan there, and then come back and attend such kind when you do Amritabella. And you're left wondering that, you know, when they say you wake up in the morning to do this uh, Amritabella Ashnan, that's when the gates of such kind happen, uh, you know, open for you. So for one faction, these gates close at 11.55 in the night. For the other faction, they close at 2.55 in the morning. And then the last faction, they close at 5.55 in the morning. 
So, you know, literally, who are we to accept as being, you know, the most authentic ones? Uh, uh, I think I remember something from Jordan Peterson, yeah? Yep. And it was about, uh, based on 1984, the novel? Yes, by Orville. Yeah, George Orwell. And, uh, okay. So he said that there's a revolution. Hmm. And then there's a counter-revolution. And the people who say, okay, we're even better Marxists than these people. These people have lost the plot. Yeah. So they get yep. even more radical. After, let's hmm. say, a few years, those counter-revolutionaries suffer another revolution where the new people say, we are even much more better Marxists or communists than these people. So, so along the same it's... lines, along the same lines, yep. our Amrit Bela is at 6 a.m. No, ours is at 5 a.m. No, ours is at 4 a.m. No, 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 you're all wrong. Ours is at 3 a.m. <laughs> you know? And yep. it, it, it might get to the get to a point where the Amrit Bela might be at 8 p.m. <laughs> it might get to a point where at the end of the day you drop down dead from fatigue because you aren't even sleeping. So if if you happen to be working at night, let's say, what's your Amrit Amr Bela? Well, I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing. If you're working at a shift and you get off your shift at around six o'clock and you do your part puja then and then you go to sleep, but the gates of such kind are, you know, closing at 5.55 a.m., then, you know, what's in it for you? New job. <laughs> you see, and these are the sort of contradictions. These are the sort of contradictions which mistranslations of Gurbani lead to now. You know, the Amritsar's Rover Ramdas, Rover Nateshab, and there are many other Shabbats which, you know, they mistranslate to say it's the physical Amritsar. And we discussed this in the Darbar episode that it says this physical Amritsar, you need to go and have a bath. Now, the fact is that, you know, when Guru Ramdas wrote those, some of those Shabbats, there was no Amritsar at the time. And then before Guru Ramdas, there was Guru Amardas, Guru Angad, Guru Nanak. There was no Amritsar at that time. So does that mean that the Sikhs and their Sangats were all sinners for not going to the physical Amritsar, which didn't even exist then? But if you're saying that that Amritsar is an adjective, then why can't it be an adjective for later generation of Sikhs? And the reality is that for their own money, for their own stomachs, for their own businesses, they've made this very handsome system. Yep. But those contradictions are coming out now, and that's what we're going to be focusing on is one of those contradictions. So what actually incited this uh, reaction from our, you know, friend who, uh, I mean, I have a mind to call him Mr. Fudu, but I'm not going to call him that. Let's just, you know, call him Mr. F. Now, it seems Mr. F seems to be opposed to us saying that adultery is not a Sikh practice. He's opposed, he's opposed to this idea that Sikhs are not idol worshippers. Yep. Now, okay, so let's just put it into context down here. You know, why adultery? How did it enter the human psyche? And why did it strike roots so deep? And what is adultery in the first place? So, you know, the common definition of the practice is that it consists of shaping mundane objects to substitute for the divine presence and then, you know, worshipping them. Now, what we have is that in the Kaaba in Islam, we have that, you know, meteoric stone, which they, you know, claim that uh, it was touched by Abraham, so they will worship that. Then on the other hand, we have Hindu society, which has a lot of, uh, you know, gods and goddesses, polytheism, and uh, they have a lot of idols as well. Now, just like, you know, Greek society and Roman society before them. Now, the irony down here, which it comes down to, is that, you know, the first 
question Gurbani has for us is that Vaheguru Akal Purakh, God, Creator, whatever you want to call him, you know, he, or let's just say they, Vaheguru gave us a form, right? Mm-hmm. And this form came about as a result of Vaheguru designing us, you know, over time. And let's see, we started from apes, we, you know, became Homo sapiens and we progressed further, 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 further. Today, speaking physically, our body is probably one of the weakest on the in all of creation, but our brain is the most formidable in all of creation as well. Now, when we say that our maker has the same form as us, this brings us to one thing that if the maker has the same form as us, if we didn't evolve over time, then where are our imperfections coming from? Man, you're making some heavy points today. Well, just, as always. Just, yep, just just listen to this point down here. Now, according to Christianity, according to Islam, you know, according to Hinduism as well, all these faiths, you know, conventional faiths, all these dogmatic faiths, some super creator formed us in his own image. I mean, the Vaishnava school of Hindu thought believes this and not the, you know, the other thoughts, but we will get on to Vaishnavism as soon and why it's only a transitionary school. Anyhow, they believe that God created us in his image. So if he created us in his image, where do our defects come from? And then the claims are made that there's a devil, Iblis, or, you know, there are some, you know, demonic uh, people. And that's where it comes down to the fact that believe in our cult. If you don't, then you will always be subject to these demonic natures, etc., etc. And if you look at the fundamentalist uh, preachers in the Bible Belt, even today, they say that God gets angry. So if God gets angry, man has right has the right to get angry. And if you're defining your anger as being righteous because you're a Christian and your Christian God is the true God and that God is angry and you can get angry as well, you have the right to get angry because you worship a God capable of getting angry, then what is stopping someone else from using that same logic on you that, you know, if your God is getting angry, my God gets angry as well. Hey, I'm pretty pissed off that you don't believe in my angry God. Stuff your angry God. You see where these quandaries lead us to? We're at each other's throats. And if God is in physical form, now why have we been given a physical form? So there's a general consensus in the religious world that this physical form is for doing, you know, godly stuff. In Hinduism, it might be, you know, meditating your life away. In Christianity, it might be, you know, just becoming a conformist. In Islam, obviously, it's spreading the faith. But if God has given us this physical form, then, you know, what uses God's own physical form to God himself? I don't don't have answers to the, all these questions. They are, they are, you, know, you must think about them for at least a week or something. Then maybe write down an answer and try to refine it. And so don't they. They don't have answers as well. So they just try to insult you and walk away. That's why these faiths have that, you know, strict emphasis on, you know, totalitarianism, mental totalitarianism that you can't think. See, the fundamental thing is, okay, so let's take it. The creator is in human form. But if the creator is hampered by vice and virtue because of that human form, then is humanity's imperfectness static and perfectness only an illusion? And the thing is that the irony in all this is that we are trying to imagine God as being one of us. So the man created God in his image. Man created God in his image. Now, 
obviously this will you know not allow us to grasp reality now in Sikhi what Baba Nanak tells us is that we have come through countless janams now these janams are not in the past sense to spot reincarnation but in the present sense so what he's actually saying is that as we evolved over time we have base traits you know fallen traits from the animals we involved from man is essentially an animal until he starts you know utilizing his intellect and Waheguru is formless. Now, based on the reincarnation, you know, issue, we will say that, you know, man, the man's uh, physical form is the highest of all the animals. Of all the beasts, man's physicality is the highest because man can, you know, think for himself. We on the other the hand, yep. yep. On we the other the hand, brain. yep. And Gurbani also, you know, tells us But Gurbani doesn't say that, you know, What that really means is that you have been given this human body to meet the Creator. It never says that, you know, no one else can meet the Creator, etc. What it says is that we are at that stage of mental evolution where we can imbibe the virtues of our Maker. Waheguru is formless. Waheguru created the world. In this world, we see Waheguru's hukam at play. The impartiality of hukam is a virtue, and whatever else comes from that impartiality, those virtues we are supposed to live by. That is called living in the godly way. And not, you know, imagining God to be a fearsome, you know, beast who's going to whip your ass if you don't go to sun, uh, you know, church on Sunday or the mosque on Friday or the Gurdwara on Wednesday, whatever you know, superstitions they have. Now, the fact down here is that since all these things came along, since man made God in his image, we have actually come down to, you know, several points down here. So the first one is that prior to the Sikh Gurus, we had, you know, the 15 Pugts, whose verses, you know, in the Guru Granth Sahib oppose idolatry. And foremost among them is, you know, Kabir. And Kabir, as we discussed previously, is very pointed in his criticism. So he has a verse in Asa Shri Kabir Jyoki Panchpadi Nomi Dhutkai Panjwa. Ekyonkar Sadkur Prasad. Pati Tor Maline Pati Pati Jiyo. Jis Pahan Ko Pati Tore So Pahan Nirjiyo. Bhule Malni Heyo Sadkur Jagta Heyo Rahao. Brahm Pati Bisandadri Full Sankar Deo, Teen Dev Pratak Tore, Kare Kiski Seo, Pakan Gartka Murtkine Taika Sahet Pau, J. Eo Murt Sachet or Karanhari Kau. Now, what it really says is that starting from the start of this verse, because you know, this is uh, you know, quite a archaic language here, what Kabir is essentially saying is he's actually criticizing the people who are making idols. Now, you know, the first thing which is used to justify idolatry is that God is in each and every microcosm of creation. Now, last time I told you about the Yajur Veda, you know, section 32.8. Mm-hmm. And what that says is that Brahman is a non-sentient force which has woven this illusion around us. And in this illusion, each and every particle is permitted by Brahman. But Brahman has no intention in making creation. So because Brahman is non-sentient, we need to emulate this non-sign 
tie-ins by, you know, meditating your life away and dissolving our individual self in this Brahman. So, you know, dissolving yourselves into nothingness. There's no point to life. We are here by an accident. And Life is suffering, yeah? Life is suffering. Now, what's happened is that this Vedic uh, thought is quite heavy for many individuals. So Vaishnavism came along as a more or less sort of a personalized form of this. So according to Vaishnavism, while this is all an illusion, fundamentally speaking, Brahman has also precipitated the creation or the birth of demigods like, you know, Krishna, Ram, Chandra, Vishnu, Brahma, Shiva, etc., etc. And these preserve and positive humanity on the path towards Brahman. You know, Krishna comes to save the Vedas, Ramchandra comes to save the Vedas, etc. And what Guru Nanak says in Japji Sahib is, Now, the way our lot translate this nowadays is, And they're saying mother. One mother created three disciples to uh, to ensure the function of you know creation and this my this mother usually is a and I'm trying to do my best impression down here vocal impression she chandi ji mata ad shakti ji shastra ji but what guru nanak is saying reality if you look at the gurmukhi grammar and the context is that one illusion has started this little jugat this little, uh, you know, method methodology, which leads us to believe that there are three facets of creation. And these three are controlled by three disciples. So, you know, Brahma creates, Shiva destroys, Vishnu preserves. And you find this replete in all other uh, cultures and faiths as well. The so-called yep. divine trinity. That's the and reason why you have so many uh, Shiva temples, but uh, I think there's only one Vishnu temple or Brahma temple. Yes, yes. But what Guru Nanak is saying is that this is just an illusion. So one illusion, Eka Maya, Eka Maya, one illusion has started all this. And this illusion or delusion has convinced us that these three exist. Now this next line is quite crucial because this comes after the, you know, uh, Punjabi substitute, the Gurmukhi, uh, you know, version of a full stop. And what it's saying is, Now, this is directly addressed to Yunavahiguru Akalpurk, that there is a creator who has infinite intelligence. Whatever this creator wishes transpires, and that Furman, that you know, royal order, that royal decree is always carried out. That you know, we can't see this hokam, this will, even though this Furman exists. Look at the wonder here. That, you know, there is a will powering creation, but we can't see the will in action, only the results of it. Hmm. And you see how this one, uh, this one mistranslation, this one deliberate mistranslation has led us down this other path. And by Rata Singhji uh, Narankari, who was the descendant of Baba Dial Singh Narankari back during Maharaja Ranjit Singh's time, Shamsher Singh Ashok records, now here's a differentiation we need to make, is that these aren't the modern Narankaris, these were before them, they split off from these Narankaris because these Narankaris had a characterless, you know, leader. 
Then you have the original Narankaris, Baba Ratta Sangaji was, you know, invited to the Kal Takht to discuss the matter of Ardas. You know, Ekyankar Shri Vahiguruji Ki Fateh Shri Pugati Ji Sai, even though Ardas was different back in the day. And this was exactly what Baba Ratta Sangaji had said to, you know, uh, Kam Singh Bedi at the time, that on one hand, we were saying that Devi was, you know, uh, using her hair to wipe Dev Agrunanak Ji. And now we are saying that Guru Gobind Singh was compelled to worship the same Devi to create the Pant Khalsa. <laughs> and why is it that, you know, Akal Puruk's, you know, power is now, you know, divided from Akal Puruk and we have given it an organic form and a self, when in reality, Baba Nanak is saying that, you know, You know, what's more supreme? Everything comes out of Akal Puruk's hukam. So why then are we, you know, taking this power and saying that this is some other power? So if if you would, let's say, go into a pagan society, you might find them worshipping a tree or something, yeah? Yep. Maybe a tree, maybe a river, they might worship the sun. Yep, so, and I'll, I'll get on to that. I'll get on to that soon. But the original Pagd Kabir Shabbat we are discussing, which uh, I had to digress from, what Pagd Kabir essentially is saying is you tear off the leaves. He's addressing this to a gardener. So you tear off the leaves, but then you say in each and every leaf, there is life. The stone idol for which you tear off those leaves, that stone idol is lifeless. And now, obviously, the gardener has turned around and said to Pagd Kabir that you're saying contradictory statements. How does this make sense? So this is the next verse. In this you're mistaken. That's what Pagd Kabir now says to the gardener. The true guru, Satgur Jagthetio, what that means is that the truth is the living Lord. You say, now this is, you know, Pagd Kabir saying this to the gardener. You say Brahma is in the leaves, Vishnu is in the branches, and Shiva is in the flowers. So when you break these three gods to worship those gods, as you claim, whose service are you performing? He's not saying that these three actually exist or they, you know, actually are in the, you know, in creation or that they are even real. What he's saying is that you claim all your gods permit reality. So why then do you damage one facet of reality to worship another singular facet of reality? You know, the sculpture carves the stone and fashions it into an idol, placing his feet upon its chest. So if the stone god was real, wouldn't it eat the sculpture for this? Yeah. You know that all the rich delicacies you offer to this idol, and you know that in reality, only ashes go into the mouth of the idol while the priest, the Brahman, enjoys everything else. Well, the Brahman has a divine right to enjoy it because he is a Brahman. And this is where the hypocrisy of idol tree is being you know, highlighted by Pakt Kabir straight away. He's saying that, look at it. You're saying God is in each and every facet of creation. So why not worship the entire creation rather than worshiping one singular object? It's a, it might be a simplistic point, but it's a very pointed and fundamentally speaking quite an effective point. It is, in fact, of course. Now, where Kabir leaves off, 
Tertiary Pakht, Namdev takes up. Now, he was even more sarcastic towards idolatry. Now, this is what Pakht Namdev has to say. Eka patthar tije pao. Duje patthar tarya pao. Je ohe deo te oho bi deva. Kahe naam deo ham har ki seva. So, you know, what he's saying is that, okay, so you take one stone, carve it up and worship it. So, one stone is God. And another one, we step upon and walk upon and, you know, do whatever we want to do upon it. So if one stone is divine, and you're saying that God is in all stones, then why don't you use all stones to, you know, represent God? So if there is God in one stone, then in the other one, is he barren? <laughs> Not just stone, I think... Uh... The stone is a uh, it's a metaphor here, yeah. The stone might be a metaphor, but I guess in one way it's a metaphor as well as you know something practical of what he's saying here. Really, let's just say it. The stone might be a metaphor for image, anyhow. So it can be an image, you know, besides the stone, because you know a lot have a habit of saying that. Oh well, it's only talking about stones and not timber. Next thing you know, they start worshiping timber murtia. Well. Could be timber murti, it could be even paintings or pictures. That's my point. It's not just stone, that there's no way of getting around it. Okay, they're talking about stone. We can't worship stones, we can definitely worship pictures, and people do in our houses. We must have seen mm. them. And Gurdwaras as well. Yeah, of course. So basically, for the Pugs, the issue was that you know there is one formless God who made the entire creation. So why are we worshiping something else altogether? Why are we worshiping only one facet of the creation? Now, of course. Some people say that for the gurus, it doesn't matter how you worship uh, God as long as you have a pure heart. You have heard that one as well, eh? Uh, the Dil Sachata, of course. Yeah. Now, the Sikh gurus were more direct in their opposition to idolatry. And as far as the pre-Sikh era was concerned, there was some grasp of, you know, one directive creative potency. But this potency was disjointed into countless sub-potencies to justify that, you know, the one singular creative potency had no interest in utilizing itself. So, you know, like we discussed, Exansarik, Pandarik, Levi, these three came about because, you know, Brahman was unfeeling. Brahman wasn't even humanistic in any sense of the term. So, you know, you needed something people could relate to. So it was decided that there are minor demigods who ensure creation keeps on running. So, you know, here's the contradiction. Now, if you think about it, Brahman has no point in taking interest in creation. But the common worshipper needs to feel that there is some divine power above him which takes interest in his affairs and which he can placate to achieve his life's desires. So obviously there came these demigods who were created by unfeeling Brahman who didn't intend to create them and they ensured creation was running. But at the same time, they also answered mankind's plea in turn, if mankind followed their path and ultimately disolluted themselves in Brahman. Hmm. So, quite a beautiful system, isn't it? Works well for them. And you can find a precedence for this in everything, even in ancient Greece, Rome. You can find it in all cultures which have idolatry. Now, so what we're saying is one god, or not even one god, one creative potency divided into a million countless others. 
Hmm. Avatars, the word is used here. Yep, necessary illusions, pretty much. Now, <clears throat> here was the quid pro quo relationship down here that, you know, I need to dissolve myself in reality, and this reality means that the current reality, this creation, is all false. But to do that, I need some solace in life. I need to be posited on the right path. I need to have faith. So how do I get to this you know, point of faith? I need to placate these subpotencies, which represent one microcosm of that other reality. So when Vaishnav Bhakti came along, idolatry really took off. Because come to think about it, and I'll get onto this, you know, in the next one down here, is that idol tree really takes God out of man and puts him somewhere else. So there is a God and he's on another plane. Hmm. Now, all societies where idol tree transpires, have you realized that those societies don't value the concept of human oneness? Yeah, well, I know they don't, yeah. If you think about it, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, all other idolatrous uh, civilizations, they have a bit of a hierarchy going on, like, you know, the caste system or the priestly classes, etc., etc., because really you're taking the divinity out of yourself, putting it on another pedestal, and on that pedestal then you're saying that, you know, that divinity is wor uh, worth your worship. The common man is, you know, on a very descendant plane when compared to that divinity. The divinity is higher than the common man. So you can easily see that the oneness of mankind, which is rooted on that there is that divine infinite spark of, you know, singularity within us because we are created by one creator is no more left in man. It's taken out straight away. Yeah, but it is. It is uh, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a very good observation. It's also, let's say, a direct question to the people who believe in idolatry. So man is made less than men. You understand mm -hmm. what I mean? Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that potential, that, you know, theory of potential, man having infinite potential is suddenly destroyed straight away because really what's being said is that you don't have that potential because you don't have the divinity within you. It lies somewhere else. Now, this is not to say that man is God. But what I'm essentially saying is that, you know, there is godliness about man. You see what I mean down here? Man can emulate God's attributes, positive attributes at least, if you talk about idolatry. But that unification, that unity, that, you know, uniting sense is suddenly taken away altogether. I mean, you know, we, in those societies, I mean, it's easy to argue those societies have been revolutionary, but in a way, if you look at it, those societies speaking internally, there is a lack of empathy which defines them. Hmm. It for a few minutes. Consider it for a few minutes. Well, th that's why I've been largely silent for the past five, ten minutes, because I'm, I'm trying to think. You're just putting point after point after point. 
Because this lack of empathy, now here's another thing, this empathy is directed towards somewhere else. And now this is going to be something you're going to like. So this empathy is actually divided into nine components and all these components are directed towards the idol. Now it's argued that the idol is a substitution, but a focal point substitution for the divine presence. Again, if you look at Bhagnam Dev and Kabir Shabads, we will understand that, you know, even this is quite disingenuous logic, dubious logic, because the divine presence is all around us. It is within us. But rather than realizing that divine presence, we are focusing it somewhere else. So how this has been sundered is the fact that what's been introduced is something called Prema Pagati. If Bhakti means devotion in a simplistic sense, that then Prema means love. And this is how Prema Bhakti happens. So these are the nine modes described from you know, Upanishadic and Vedic literature. So first, developing faith in the deity. Two, associating with only that deity's adherents. Three, performing devotional service for the deity and its residents. Four, relinquishing worldly responsibilities in the name of the deity. Five, augmenting faith in the deity through music and otherwise. Six, only ever discussing the deity. Seven, full attachment to the deity and no one else. Eight, solely retaining love for the deity. And nine, mental dissolution into the deity and ultimately the root Brahman. Okay. Now, this is called Brahma Bhakti. And I guess in Sikhi, it's called the nine limbs of Chandi. And Dr. Daljit Singh pointed out the problem with these Sikhs to it that, you know, they do all this stuff for the Guru Granth, but do they live the moral life which the Guru Granth Sahib emphasizes we live? Well, you know the answer to the question very well, Mr. Singh. <laughs> Mr. F already gave it to us last night. <laughs> <laughs> See? So that's the one. These nine things see us doing a lot of funny stuff like, you know, washing weapons with milks, etc., etc. Now the Sikh gurus identified two problems with idolatry. They thought more deeply than the bugs. So the first one, of course, it nullified the requisite for ethicality and morality by separating the divine and the human planes. So, you know, the creator is actually divorced from the creator's divinity which is within men, is divorced from men. So obviously we are talking about, you know, the oneness of humanity being destroyed by adultery. Because if indeed the maker is on the outside and not on the inside, then by rights there was no commonality of humankind as there was no existing innate relationship between one human and the next. So from this problem comes the next problem. Now, one thing you will notice about civilizations which practice idolatry, somewhere along the way they started as monotheists, then they went to polytheism. And there was an explosion point within them where, you know, multiple gods and goddesses were born. It's common across all cultures and civilizations which practice idolatry. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'm, try, I'm trying to think about the examples of ancient Greece. I'm not too sure about what, what happened in ancient Egypt, but uh, I think I get your point. So now, if we were to define polytheism as being the worship of multiple gods in lieu of one, that's 
that's a very simplistic definition. Now, the reality behind polytheism's existence is that it diversifies ethicality to the degree that ethics and morals become entirely relative. So the problem is the gurus perceived, uh, perceived it was a classic case of dogmatic hypocrisy. So society still requires some degree of ethics to provide solace with the vision of justice. So if we take it in the you know, Indian case, the Indic case, justice was mostly the mainstay of their light castes. Then, you know, in other idolatrous civilizations, it belonged to the ruling elite. All these head honchos were free to choose which ethic to believe in it when. So if one credo or deity proved too stringent, another could be adopted. So with each deity, with each god came its own relative set of ethics. So really what we're saying is that if man makes God, then man obviously makes the gods virtues. And you're free to choose which virtue you want or not. Oh, okay, uh, okay. Uh, if you were to imagine God as a human being, what qualities or what virtues would he or she have? See, now this is where we are aiming for. Now, in an idolatrous society, you would be free to decide what virtues and ethics you want God to have. Is that God going to have human virtues or something else? Now, that's the thing. That's the thing, because if you're saying one God, uh, you know, diversified into multiple gods and goddesses, etc., 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 and you can worship them in an image form, then obviously if you're giving God a form, you're free to give God, you know, morals and ethics. So what I'm essentially saying is where society is concerned, because the Sikh Gurus thought very deeply about this, where society was concerned, there was no static set of ethics and morals. Ethics and morals were always changing. Hmm. And you see and you and you see this in the caste system. You see this in the caste system as well, compartmentalized set of ethics for each caste. Yep, 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 I got your point, yep. So, I mean, if you look at it, the most uh, fundamental case, the most, uh, you know, non-profound case we can quote is that of the Aztec civilization. So, Aztec priests only buffed the day they were born. Mm -hmm. After that, they used to, you know, wear human skin and human organs as their clothes for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And then if you look at it, they were the gods, uh, they were the priests of Hummingbird, the, you know, primary Aztec deity. Then you had the priests of the Star Slayer who, you know, used to buff every day, etc. So, so you see, even it turned down to the fact that as far as the, you know, priests of Hummingbird were concerned, uh, if you were walking down the street and they looked at you, they could order you killed, while the others did not have that, you know, regulatory power because their set of ethics was very different from Hummingbird's ethics. Hummingbird was the god of war. The so smallest see, bird was the god of war. Yep. So you see what I mean? The different set of ethics, there's no one yardstick with which you can judge society. People are free to do whatever they want to. And obviously, this is how an underclass will be born, which is always suffering.
I mean, take for example Sparta. In Sparta, we had the Helots, if I remember the term correctly, the slaves. Yeah, oh, the slaves here. Yeah. And Spartans, when they used to train, their mission usually used to be was to go there, find a family of Helots and kill them. Uh, there was a lot more going on, but that was a part of it here, as well, as far as I know. That, that was part of it. Now, if you look at uh, Greek, uh, Athens, if you were born retarded in Athens or handicapped, they would still try to make something of you. In Sparta, you would just be thrown off a cliff. Uh, they will stamp your butt first. <laughs> Two different set of ethics going there. And there's a silent underclass who suffers the most. You see how these examples, multiple examples of these societies, because if you're worshipping, you know, idols, it's not just the act of idolatry, which is, you know, ultimately uh, denuding your sense of oneness, your sense of divinity, which is annihilating it. It's also the very concept, the deep philosophical connotations of idolatry, which destroy your society. And this is why Guru Arjun wrote a very, very profound Shabad. And this is what he actually says. Just pahan ko thakur kahata, ho pahan le usko dobda. Gun har loon loon harami, pahan navna pargarami. Gurmil nanak thakur jata, jaltal mahayal puran vidata. So what he's actually saying is that the idiot fails to perceive the maker of it. Now what he's saying is that don't close your eyes and you know do vaiguru vaiguru to see the god within. What he's saying is that the idiot fails to perceive that the maker's intelligence and attributes are within him and within everyone else. They're within humans. So what this idiot does is he hangs an image around his neck to remember whatever he associates with whoever he believes to be God. And like a cynic, he wonders, helter-skelter, forever plagued by doubt. So, you know, if he doesn't like one god, one god doesn't listen to him, he can go to the next god, etc., etc., etc. You know, adopt a different set of ethics and morals. And what he's doing is he's churning water. If he churns milk, he gets butter, but here he's churning water and getting bubbles. And this is how he wastes his life. The stone he declares his god, that stone ultimately drowns him mentally. Why be untrue to your own innate self? White soft stone only sink by accepting the truth. We realize a true maker, that perfect maker permits anything and everything. Okay, so we are nearly, well, quarter, three quarters on three, three quarters of an hour in. Hmm. So you see, the problem with a society which practices adultery is that it takes the God out of the man, makes the man give God virtues and ethics which aren't even God's, and at the end of the day, it sets men on the path to destruction. Such societies are never able to progress mentally or philosophically. Uh, I, I think we had a, a little bit of a connection issue. I, I was going to ask you a question that... Yes. Uh, let's talk about some serious uh, serious points. Yep. 
what form of idol worship are we as Sikhs involved in today? So what happened was that during the Singh Sabha era, Gyani uh, Dit Singh was confronted by Swami Dayanand on this very point. Now, the initial debate between Dayanand and Dit Singh hadn't gone well for Dayanand because Dayanand was a colonial product. So he was trying to cast Brahman as a sentient god. And what had happened was Gyani Dit Singh also knew about the Vedas as well. And he was sitting debating with Dayanand and he asked Dayanand, so how did Ishwar create creation? And uh, Dayanand said, well, then... Ishwar created it through the four elements which existed before Ishwar and Dayanand had pretty much pointed out so well, you know, your Ishwar is like a laborer or a woman in a kitchen. They always have the tools and utensils, but they can't create anything themselves. And uh, people had started laughing and Dayanand had gotten really angry because if Dayanand had continued this line of thought further, as uh, Gyanid Dat Singh relates in his, uh, you know, Dayanand Ademira Zamband, he would have been forced to admit that ultimately the Vedic creation mythos is based on Brahman, and Brahman is non-sentient. So the fact that Gyani Datsing was saying, uh, that Dayananda was saying there is an Ishwar like the biblical god, that entire myth would have been exposed straight away. His lie would have been caught out. <clears throat> Dayananda, however, didn't give up and decided to, you know, attack Sikhi by saying that the Sikhs practice bibliotry. And this is where Gyani Ditsing took him to the task again. We bow to the Guru Granth Sahib because it gives us Gyan, practical Gyan which we can live by. And the fundamental difference is that an idol is being placated to get something. Whereas in Sikhi, we bow to the Guru Granth Sahib because it teaches us how to live. So on one hand, we have a teacher and on the other hand, we have a God. A conventional God who does nothing at all People are wasting their time. And on the other hand, in Sikhi, we have a mentor. We have the Guru Granth Sahib. You understand what I'm meaning? I understand, but uh, let, let's uh, allow... Okay, let's dump it down for Mr. F and his entire family. <laughs> his entire bloody clan and his entire group. Anyhow, what I'm saying is that in Sikhi, the Guru Granth Sahib is a mentor. A practical mentor. What is an idol? What one is idol, an idol? One idol has multiple texts to it. There is no attributes connected to the idol itself that this is how to ethically live your life. One idol probably has a hundred different scriptural texts attached with it. Here in Sikhi, we just have the Guru Granth Sahib. We bow down to it to show reverence. Why do we show reverence to it? Because it teaches us how to live. It mentors us. We have the chore sub over it to show sovereignty, but more practically to keep, you know, insects away from it. You know, any vermin. We wrap it up in clothes and we put it on a high pedestal every night for safety. Back in the day in Pakistan, when I asked, you know, the elders from there who came from there, they told me that it usually used to be a cupboard where we used to put the Guru Granth Sahib right on the top after wrapping it up in multiple layers. Yeah, it, true. Now, the problem is, you know, what Dayananda identified was that Sikhs were doing Prema Pagati to Guru Granth Sahib. Well, he wasn't wrong and, in, in, in a sense. And that's exactly how Gyani Datsinga destroyed him again. But Gyani Datsinga also had a warning for the Sikhs now. We mentioned nine modes of, you know, Prema Pagati or the nine limbs of Chandi as our Lord called them. 
the reality is that if I'm waving Chor Sab over the Guru Granth Sahib and the Gurdwara, it's going to get me nothing. If I'm doing Langar in the Gurdwara, Langar the Seva, it's going to get me nothing. No, it's, it's going to get you fat. That's what it's going to get you. Well, one thing. <laughs> but on the basis of spiritual benefit, it's going to get me nothing. Why? Because all this is selfless seva with a practical design. Now, if our Sikhs understood this fact, Gurdwara committees would be the ones doing the, you know, every uh, week giving a new Ramallah to Maharaj and taking care of the Gurdwara. But because there are a lot don't understand this, unfortunately, they're going the way of Rema Pagdi. You don't have a kid, take a Ramallah to the Gurdwara. You want to uh, get a good place in heavenly real estate when you die? <laughs> Donate a few million dollars to the Guru Granth Sahib, even to the point, look at Ardas, you know, Maharaji, so-and-so doesn't have a kid, please give him a kid. Man, okay. Sorry, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Hold on. Yep. In, in some previous podcast, you mentioned heavenly Bibia. <laughs> yep. And now you have heavenly real estate. It's 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 the point which I'm trying to make down here. Well, well it is used to every person who's who die is a swargawasi. Yeah. Yep. Even though the guy might be a real turtle conjure in life, he's a swargawasi <laughs> after dying. <laughs> now, Gyani Ditsing debunked the Anand that the Sikhs don't do bibliotry. But if Gyani Ditsing was alive today, he would take a chitter off right around us. Find in, have a simple Chandwa Saab, have a simple, you know, Tara Saab. But what do we have down here? Would the Guru really be happy with what we have here today? I, I have this uh, a thought in mind, and, and I think uh, I read it a long time ago. They say that the problems, they vanish. The solutions remain as traditions. Mm-hmm. That's the point. I mean, if you think about it, if you think about it, during Guru Gobind Singh's time, Guru Arjun's time, how was Guru Granth Sahib kept? Did we have Ch- uh, Chandwa Sahib of gold above it? No, of course not. Did we throw milk on floors while people were dying outside? Even if they were not dying outside, there's no point throwing milk on floors. And all this brings us to the point that what have we done today? We have brought that Brahma Bhakti rubbish back into Sikhi again, and that's what Gyani Ditsing warned the Sikhs against. Now, here's another controversial story which is going to be pretty, you know, burning for Mr. F and his type. And this one is uh, the Tanna story, that Tanna manifested God through a rock. Have you heard that? Be very, very careful. I'm a jack. <laughs> now, in 1974, Dara Singh even made a film on this. He spent millions on something which didn't even really happen. Hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, okay. Now, what was the movie? I beg your pardon? What's the name of the movie? Part Tanna Jack. Oh, oh, well, yeah. Okay, go on. Now, these Pandra Bhats were revolutionaries, and that's why Guru Nanak and uh, you know the subsequent gurus incorporated their Gurbani into the Guru Granth Sahib. They're burning into the Guru Granth Sahib. Now, the fact was that 
In the 1600s, there was an individual whose name was Nabadas. And Nabadas being the Pujari, he was decided here to corrupt the lives of all these, you know, figures of prime importance on the subcontinent, you know, these radicals. So the Pandra Pugs came in for their own drubbing. Now, Pakhtaravidas took a stand against caste discrimination by wearing the Janyu. By wearing? The Janyu. Okay. He was a Dalit and he wore the Janyu. The Brahmins used to say the world will turn upside down, but the Ravidas wore it for a long time. Nothing happened. That's the reality. Now, according to Nabadas, but Ravidas wore a Janyu and he was questioned by the Brahmins why he was wearing a Janyu. And Pak Ravidas ripped his chest open and inside there saw a scene in the Satyug where Pak Ravidas himself was a Brahmin. He committed an error and he was born a Dalit and they decided, oh, well, look, you were a Brahmin in your past life, you can wear the Janyu. It's the same story that Pai Bardana <coughs> drank brandy in his previous life. Yep, yep. So you see the system these individuals opposed, that same system is thrust onto them again. <clears throat> If you think about it, in, in very simple terms, they say that you being born uh, into the Ravidasa community is a sin. You are a Brahmin. It's, it's, it's a punishment for you to be born in, in, in this community. Now, let's just let's just talk about this one point down here. It said that Pai Mardana used to be a you know, yogi. He was doing tapasya when, um, <clears throat> when he drank brandy and he was reborn as a Muslim Mirasi, right? I know it's Sunday, but have you eaten too, way too many pakoras today? Yes, but on the other hand, if you look at the Pai Mardana story, let's continue with that. Pai Mardana is born as Pai Mardana. Why? Because he, you know, drank brandy in his old life. Yeah, his previous life, to be exact. <clears throat> his previous life. If he wasn't born as Pai Mardana, would he have met Guru Nanak? <sighs> well, what can I say? That's the thing. That's the thing. That this is actually uh, something which happened in New Jersey. You know, Gurbak Singh Kalav Khanna was there. Same point he made once that, you know, there was Amritari and uh, he was getting a uh, langar and a monna was about to give him a parshad. And he said, no, 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 no. Maybe be back to the Jogi because, you know, you're a monna. Gurbak Singh turned around and asked him, so you're a monna <clears throat> to the guy giving the langar and you're an Amritari to the Sikh. And he's like, yep. And he's like, is Amrit higher or being a monna? And he said, Amrit. So he said that if a monna is giving you parshada, then wouldn't your hands touching it because you're Amrit Thari make it pure again? And and if a monna <clears throat> is strong enough to break your wrath or whatever you call it, how strong is it to begin with? There you go. There you go. And that's actually the same thing here again. If Pak Taravidas wasn't born a Dalit, then would, he, would we have his, his words today? His stance against caste discrimination? If Mardana wasn't born as Mardana, would we have had, you know, such a faithful companion of Baba Nanak? Well, uh, they might have been, I don't know, but but the stories associated with them are, let's say, <laughs> not false, putting it very, very lightly. Sorry, not true, putting it very, very lightly. <clears throat> now, how Nabadas decided to attack Sikhi was he decided to change, alter the legend of Pagtana. The story of Pagtana was, you know, actually recounted by uh, by Gurdas in his vars. It's still there in the Dasmi var. And 
So the story runs says Nabadas, you know, says is that Pagtana goes to a Brahmin and the Brahmin gives him the stone and Pagtana goes home and tries feeding the stone. Nothing happens. He gets angry and threatens to kill himself. And <clears throat> subsequently, God has to come out of the rock and eat the roti. That's the story, yep. And Dara Singh spent a few million, you know, rupees making it into a super hit movie. It always fascinates me because uh, <clears throat> when you say Pagdaravidas, okay, Pagdakabir, okay. But when it comes to Tanna, Tanna Jatta. Tanna Jatta. Now, <clears throat> so let's look at Pai Gurdas's var. Does Pai Gurdas actually say Tanna manifested God through a rock? So let's start from the Gurmukhi. Eh? <clears throat> First one. Bhamman Puja Devta Tanna Gauchanavan Ave. So the Brahmin, how he then says uh, daily bread is by feeding his gods. So he's tricking people into giving him food, saying that he's feeding the stone gods, but in reality, he's eating it himself. Tana, meanwhile, earns his daily bread through honesty by being a cowherd. Yep, he was, yep. <clears throat> Next line. Tana pita chalta, tana bita chalta, eho puche baman ak sanave. Now what happens is that Tana sees the difference. This is what the Gurmukhi is saying. And he invites the Brahmin to discuss the matter. Aksanave means that he says and that he listens and he invites the Brahmin to do the same. So there's a debate. So then the Brahmin gives a rejoinder. <clears throat> and this is what the Brahmin is saying now. Now, this is how clever these uh, Mr. F types are. That, you know, what they're saying is that this is Tana now saying that, you know, this is uh, the next line. But in reality, this is the Brahmin. What they're doing is they're deleting the past two lines when they come to this. If someone has the you know knowledge of Gurmukhi, they can easily catch it out. That why are you guys changing the context? But there are people don't. So this is what the Brahmin is saying. seva karo jo soi I serve my deity. The people who I direct towards doing the same acquire their heart's wishes. Now this indicates that the Brahmin knows about Tanna's reputation. Tanna must have had quite a reputation, and that the Brahmin is trying to, you know, ward him off, get him away from himself. You know that by claiming, because obviously people have gathered around, and he's trying to justify what he's doing by saying, "Look, I'm just, you know, worshiping my gods. Leave me alone." Tanna karda jodari mebi deho ek jo pave. Now. This is where it's claimed that Pai Gurdas is saying Tana karda jodari, that Tana is actually begging the rock that come out and eat my food. But what this really is, is that this is the Brahmin's dialogue. Tana karda jodari, maybe deho And what the Brahmin is saying is Tana, I beg of you, leave me. Here, if you so wish, I'll give you a stone god as well. Patharek laptkar de Tana no gal chadave. So what he's actually done is gal chadave. Now what this means is that you know he wants to liberate his neck. So what Pai Gurdas is saying, he's using adjectives here to say that Tana has the Brahmin's neck in a very tight rope, which means he's got you know the Brahmin cornered. <clears throat> yep, and so what, yep. And so what the Brahmin has done is he's actually handed a stone to Tana to escape himself. And then the Brahmin says, Takranu nevalke chai Roti le pog charave. See, now my God requires a bath and sustenance. This is still the Brahmin. So he's still unable to convince Tana, who stays there, and the people as well. He's unable to answer Tana's logic. So this is what the Brahmin finally does. Hatha jor menta 
करो पूरी पे पे बहुत मनावे now he falls at tanas feet he forfeits his caste status and boils down to a jut a lower caste jut that leave me alone hobi mehna chutalmi chutalsi tu roti rutha tu rutha me kehona sukhave that look tana i won't even eat my own roti because i know you're angry so how can i convince you of my sincerity the brahmin still sticking to his lies and then tana says gosaya pratak hoy roti khai chai mohe mulave pratak what right in front of my eyes yeah right in front of my eyes right in front of your eyes right in front of everyone's eyes that's where vahigru kalpur gosai that's the term tana uses that's where maharaj is so why are you worshiping these rocks why are you worshiping that which vahigru has created when you should be worshiping vahiguru and then tana says how should we worship vahiguru pula pao gobind milave the only way to meet gobind is to forget your ego and live as he wants you to live this is true worship not by trying to honor parts of his creation <clears throat> thinking it from the the pujari side they just wanted to earn their let's say living by you know tricking people and through the business of god and everything god <clears throat> sin and sorrow or whatever so from the, from their perspective they are just trying to earn their bread and butter now this myth articulated circulated in the 1600s became a mainstay of sikhi by the time sikhs came out of the jungles there were people already believing this but the reality is that bhagat tanna never manifested any god through a rock not true at all not true at all and then then the shrub of the the virus translated as saying god ate roti with his own hands now here is what you know professor gurdet singh established in the 2009 indian high uh, court case that you know if how do we see vahigru in this world we see him through humans we see vahigru through humans humans who walk in his path and these humans as gurbani says have long kesh etc etc you know they accept their natural form and that was one of the many arguments he made and he won anyhow to say that vaigru comes in the earth and takes a human form that's anathema to sikhi so how come pai gurdas would say the same and you know this is where they bring down this logic that you know oh your level of understanding is that you know that i'm kind you need to be at plana plana kanda plana plana kanda babana ne gave us panch kandas this lot made you know up to 11 kandas but the same logic was tried on tanna and tanna refused to believe in it so why should we believe in it Well, you're asking hard questions, and I fully agree with you. Now, so there's a never-ending, let's say, queue of excuses. Mm-hmm. And these are the things we need to be mindful of when we we need to stop committing idolatry of the Guru Granth Sahib. Okay. What's what's easier for you? That you just treat Guru Granth Sahib as an idol, beg, weep, and expect good things to happen to you by giving the pujari the money, or hmm. it's easier for you to delve into it, try to understand Guru Granth Sahib, try to understand what the Pagas are trying to say, try to understand what the Gurus are trying to say, try to understand what the Gurus lived. What's 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 easier? 
that's what Tanaz is essentially saying. What is easier, making a stone image of Gobind and, you know, saying I worship him, I worship him and giving different deities the name of Gobind or actually worshipping the formless Gobind who has intention beyond creating the world? <clears throat> if I say, okay, if I say, let, let's, let's just talk about a single verse. Mm. Yep. Doesn't the same apply to us? It does. It does. It is idolatry, yeah? It is idolatry. So when this this verse which had been has been repeated many, many times by so many Parcharaks and Rakis or let's say uh preachers. Why doesn't the exact same verse apply to us? You got a very valid point down there. And I mean, I guess Gurbani is more, you know, lagu on us, more closer on us than it is on anyone else at the moment. But it, it's more, more lagu on us to begin with. If you look at it, Babaji's and Dera's in uh, Punjab, now, you know, Pog, Lona, Maharaj, Mupok, Lagia, they do all these shenanigans, don't they? Which Tanna saw the Brahmin doing. Well, they do it and did they do it in a very, very expensive kind of ceremony. And it's come to the point now where there are idols of Tanna. Here's the irony. Idols of Tanna being worshipped across Rajasthan. Uh, yeah, yep, true. It's happening. Sorry to say it's happening. And this this is why we need to ultimately stick to the Gurbani of Guru Granth Sahib if you want to progress and proceed further. Man... It's uh, how, how do I say this? A person who spent his entire life—well, not sure about the entire life—who who presented such such a strong argument, the the pujari turned him on his own side after he was gone mm -hmm. by by let's say mistranslating or misinterpreting what he said. So much so that we have a fresco at Baba Atalarai Gurdwara showing that uh, now worshiping, you know. Uh... Krishna coming out of a rock. Why, why Krishna? Who knows? I mean, they have different deities, maybe Vishnu, maybe Krishna, however they see it. The fact is that in reality, the real Tana has been erased from history. Hmm. And who knows what happened to the real Tanna? Well, we, we are not even sure about what's happening uh, today, what's happening in front of our eyes. Our eyes. When we, we have social media, we have cell phones, we have cameras, security cameras everywhere. If, what's happening today, even that is being misreported. How are you, to, you sure that what happened like half a millennium ago, that was described exactly as it happened? Mm, mm, mm. Especially when you have a vested interest on side of a pajari. Mm. And I guess the simplicity of Tanna was that his logic was very pointed. A single question that will keep you awake for the rest of your, your remaining natural life. A single question which would keep you screaming for the rest of your remaining life. Well, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, it, it will keep you screaming if you are, let's say, dishonest to begin with. But if you want to ponder about a thought, it will keep you awake. Huh? 
that will keep you awake. <clears throat> and yes, I had several pakoras at the Gurdwara today. So, so okay, for the listeners and for the family of Mr. F, if they want to trap you, they shouldn't use a honey trap. They should use, use a pakora trap. They <laughs> should use a pakora trap. Thank you for listening to us. Until next time, Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa. Ka Khalsa. Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa.